This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to Welcome back to another episode of Pull Up Trey. As always, I am Trey, pulling up from Three Point Line, and this is esteemed journalist of rap. <laughs> oh, wow. Samson Folk, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, kind of kicking around. This will probably be, as far as uh, the podcast go that we have done, the most drama-filled. You yeah. know what I mean? That We're going to probably touch on the jaw stuff at the end. Not not doing it from the point of view of like, we're serious men about to have a serious conversation. We also have to talk about ref drama, all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's a podcast. Of course, lots of Raptor stuff in all of this. We'll start That's with cool. the Raptors thing. Fred Van Vliet, probably the most explicit rant on refing that I remember. I, I don't know if you, I guess I'll throw it to you. Have you heard anything more explicit than what he did? No, I don't think so. I know like there was an incident in I think 04 with Shaq where he or in the Sacramento series where he really complained about the refs were costing the series and that kind of flipped the series, I remember. But and I think that's a Donahue series actually. So <laughs> I don't know how much he really helped. But I don't think anyone like especially like the vulgarity, like has gone that hard with the refs. So basically, Fred, if I can do the too long didn't read version. He called out a ref in particular, Ben Taylor, not of thinking basketball fame, who I think probably will have a video with this summer for what it's worth. But um, not not that Ben Taylor, but Ben Taylor, the ref, who he's had a lot of technical fouls with. He also just kind of had sweeping comments about how refing has been and said that they're losing um, some of the stuff that's integral to the league. That all happened. Players voiced their support for Fred. Fans from all different types of fan bases, voice their support for Fred. He has uh, responded in kind to uh, the response, let's say. The quote, I was a little emotional, tough loss and things got not going our way, so I got caught up in the moment. I'm human. You'll see me make mistakes in real time. A little unprofessional for my standard. It's unfortunate, but it happened. You live and learn. I know the refs are trying their best. We're going to disagree at times. I think there are healthier ways to do it than what transpired last night. I take full accountability for my actions and what I said, but I think it's a learning lesson for everybody. I would like a little more leeway to be emotional and have a reaction on court. I'm very passionate, and part of the reason why I said what I said is because I don't necessarily care about the money in this instance. I'm leaving it all out there, and it's frustrating at times. End quote. So Fred Lambass the referees, Ben Taylor, most of all, then comes back and says, maybe a bit too explicit. I understand guys are trying. Where do you fall on this whole topic? Not not to like play like devil's advocate, but I think um, like personally in the game, I don't think like the particular moment where 
he said the game necessarily flipped. I don't think that that tech like was the reason why they lost. And then when you look at it, it seemed like there were some personal reasons as well, because Ben Taylor has given him the large majority of his fine of his um, techs also. And considering the last game, like Scott Foster deserved this rent for, for <laughs> everyone that, that is, hasn't seen the Denver game. But um, I think it was a trickle down effect of like you saw a game where that was in hand that potentially got swayed because of the refs. And then you had another situation with someone you probably have a personal vendetta coming in. And that's where it led to all of that emotion. So this is a really interesting conversation, I find. I On the one hand, so I'll, I'll provide the background, the context. Refs obviously get stuff wrong, 100%. There are refs with massive egos in the NBA as well, in any sport, actually. Baseball, hockey, football, basketball, whatever it is, there are refs who understand they're on television, they like the show of it, and they like to be centered. Some of it seems almost like, you know, they have uh, a degradation kink or something like that, man. Like, they, they love seeing people complain about them on Twitter or just like being talked about in general. It's a thing. Do I think that's the case for the majority of refs? No. The big thing is, anytime this comes up, everybody's like, how do we fix this? How do we get better refing going forward? And everybody and their mom says, consequences. What do consequences look like for a referee? Referees are reviewed extensively every single game. Every single call you make, is reviewed by like three or four different people. They deliberate and they say if it was the right call. They This all goes into their data. The best refs, the most accurate refs, are the ones who get to call more games and especially the higher leverage games which pay more. If you do poorly, you make bad calls, you give out texts that get rescinded, all this kind of stuff, you'll call less games and then, i.e., make less money, albeit... You're, but although you're not having anything taken away from you for your labor, it's just they give you less ability to use your labor in that, I guess, way going forward. Does that make sense to you? Do you think it should be harsher? I think it's pretty fair. Like I'm not in the business of taking away money from probably the the lower end of the workers within the NBA. I don't think that really makes sense. But um, I think in certain situations where you see like obviously like um, – that Duncan situation years ago where he got suspended out of um, a pure personal vendetta situations like that, where it's an outlier really makes sense. But even in the situation with um, Scott Foster and, and Scotty, clearly it was a terrible call and might've swung the game probably did, but um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as like suspension or anything like that. It just would be like another tick on his tally and would lead to him not playing in a playoff game of the Raptors got to that, that point, for example. So I think they're cognizant of that as well and trying to make the best calls as possible. There's a an umpire in the MLB. His name is Angel Hernandez. He refuses to stop calling games from behind the plate. And he is, by consensus and by the numbers, just the worst home plate umpire. He cannot consistently call strikes or balls. The union, and I love unions, big shout out to unions, the umpire's union protects his ability to like keep doing that because he wants to work his job at his capacity. He also has seniority, all this kind of stuff. I do hope that there's good communication between the referees, whoever represents them, right? And the players union and the NBA and how they try and navigate very clear, I think, biases within the referees. You can't 
stamp it all out. But I think when there's a clear pattern emerging, for example, with Ben Taylor, right? If there or there's certain like the Scott Foster, Chris Paul stuff that exists, stuff like that, I feel like has to be interrogated really like seriously. But mm-hmm. otherwise, I fall in the same category as you was like, if referees are going to stand are going to have to withstand penalties to their salary for like missed calls or anything like that. You just won't have referees because as bad as referees can sometimes be at their jobs, it's a really hard job Yeah, and you have to go be good at it. You have to have these players, you know, really give it to you all game. Coaches give it to you all game. Nobody likes what you do except for like, there's like seven guys who, when they see a ref, they shake their hand. They're like, I ref high school basketball. What you do is you're a godsend. You know, like they have that type of conversation. They they have that ref camaraderie. You just won't get refs if there's like severe penalties for missing calls and stuff like that. I just think this is one of those things where you just have to keep striving for like positive reinforcement. And that's clearly what um, what they currently have going on. I don't know if there's a fix though. I just think it's like, it's harder to call games now because the defense gets to do less things. If you want refs to have an easier job, then you have to probably allow defenders to be a bit more handsy maybe um, for blocking fouls to not be so easy to call in favor of the offense, like all that kind of stuff. It, it, does anything pop up in your mind that makes this situation easier? Yeah, like I'm sure they already have it, but like obviously there needs to be like a standard level or standard like accuracy in order to continue refing for that particular year like angel hernandez for example i watch tons of blue jays games there's been several games where you can see like oh we're we're the one getting the calls outside of the zone and it's cost those games so like situations like that if like a percentage is like 80 percent accuracy and someone's falling under 60 that's obviously hurting the integrity of the game and you shouldn't have that person refing like continually throughout multiple seasons so i think something along that factor because ultimately like, no one wants to see challenges. I hate challenges. Even when you get, even when your team wins the challenge there, it takes away like sort of the essence of the sport and it becomes a completely different game, especially like late in game because there's two, three minutes gap in between then. And that could lead to uh, the coach drawing up a defense or calling another play that leads into a three. And it's like sort of a, uh, a foul that didn't get called. It turns into a potential three or four point swing things like that where you saw like the Denver situation where it just felt like you get cheated out of it and like the game becomes a lot different there's also like the good faith refereeing stuff where early on in games you'll see that these over the back fouls that are over the back fouls but they call them just out of bounds to keep the game moving right like it's like a guy climbs a dude and he's obviously not the one who touched the last. The other guy hits the, like the guy who was, had his back climbed on, hit the ball out of bounds. But since it's like within the, you're trying to appeal to the integrity of the game, it's like you keep the game moving. Sure, it went off the guy, but the other guy clearly fouled him. You can avoid calling fouls. You can just keep the game moving and award the possession without tying up these calls, right? And when you introduce challenges and you actually go to the letter of the law repeatedly, it can sometimes go against the integrity of the game or the flow of the game. That's really difficult, which is also leads to why refs in studies or in the data are seem more accurate by the numbers than most people perceive them. Refs, when they blow the whistle, 
are correct 96% of the time. Why? Because if you follow the letter of the law and you just go over NBA tape, you're going to find travels, you're going to find fouls, you're going to find everything, every single play. People just want the big stuff called on both sides. And I don't know which refs are the best at accomplishing that, but I hope that those guys um, can be impactful in helping teach and educate the rest of the referees. It's it's a tough job, but it, it does it does need to get better in the NBA. And I understand why Fred was really upset. I hope they send that money to a good charity that he enjoys or something like that. Yeah. Uh, any more ref thoughts? No. Uh, do you think Fred is getting the full fifty? first to start i would say yes i thought it was like 35 right 35 i thought i thought 35 was the max that could be given out this is the thing there's like we have this idea and we'll get to this later this is the gilbert arenas illuminating the john morant situation quickly right and it's like we have this idea there's a conventional wisdom to what suspensions or fines look like and then they just no longer exist like the Kyrie stuff too right is they're like, oh, it's a new type of fine, and this yeah. fine is actually a donation to the ADL. And it's like, is this in the rule book? And I'm not saying yes or no for anybody who wants to get mad at me about a very sensitive topic. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying it created a new set of rules quickly. Sometimes new sets of rules are important. Sometimes they're frivolous, right? So I don't know what Fred is going to get because, like, like you said at the start. You have to go back, what, 18 years to try and find precedent for this. And yeah. even then, that's a playoff game. That's that's different. Yeah, it's super tough. Um, do you think situations like this um, lead to, like, positive residuals leading into other games? I know that was, like, one of Phil Jackson's, like, common rules, like, call out the refs in important situations in order to, like, intensify and put focus on a particular situation, like Shaq fouls, for example. Are you asking me if... Pascal Siakam's finally going to shoot like more than 15 free throws over a two, three game span again. Cause I would love that. It just, <laughs> I hope so, man. Um, it might. And also I like, I don't know, man, especially since other players like Marcus smart was the big one, right? It's funny that NBA players now can skirt the fine. Like I wonder if Fred is a hero. Cause he, he allows everybody else to skirt the fine. Marcus Smart has a problem with the refs, and he says, well, Fred Van Vliet said it best. So he basically gets to say, like, hey, those guys over there in the gray and black, those guys suck ass, but Fred said it. You know, it's like, yeah, just go listen to what Fred said. So I wonder if he's a hero amongst the players for this because, yeah, like there's, this happens in a lot of different things. It's like, yeah, what he said can be pretty powerful, and I guess, yeah. Maybe, maybe Fred, he'll get uh, easier defensive matchups for the next few games. Like the the game is getting him back, as it were. Um, but let's talk about Scotty, the guy who was boned over the Scott Foster thing. Scotty, you know, I think the biggest indicator that he was innocent in this case is that during that film, you could see the referee who was right beside him went looking into the stands. Mm-hmm. Or for a player, unbeknownst to him, who's behind him talking trash or something, only to find out that Scotty, the guy right beside him, had apparently done something to earn a tech. And not yeah. just one, but the second technical and to be thrown of the game. Scotty Barnes has a very interesting play style already. And it gets even more interesting once you introduce the Jakob Pertl. 
people talked about how Pascal, because of his lack of shooting relative to some other players in the league, would hurt Scotty's development. If you thought that, then you have to feel the same way about Jakob Pertl. I don't feel that way about either, but I'm curious where you stand for the roadmap for Scotty headed forward. Yeah, I think I think obviously Scotty can succeed obviously with Jakob, and the team is better for having him on on the team. I would say it just has to be approached differently. I think where he found success in like mid to late January was operating sort of like a Sabonis where he's catching the ball in the mid post, doing dribble handoffs, being able to make decisions as a keeper, taking it to the rim and then utilizing his playmaking. Jakob has kind of taken some of that, some of those possessions away and they've been really effective for the Raptors, especially those um, pick and roll situations with him and Fred have been, have been money for the team. I think a lot of that comes with obviously Scotty shooting better and doing a lot of the things that were working in, in his rookie season where you saw he was working off of Pascal's gravity, coming into the lane, flash cutting, hitting a floater, playing playing defense, that would be great, and um, providing impact as an offensive rebounder. I think um, a lot of that would have to come into play until like he's able to face up and create in those situations before – um, him and Jakob are a perfect fit. But so far, so good. Like, the offense has still been great. I think defense without Jakob is, like, the general issue. I wouldn't really point to anything Scotty-wise. Okay, so you and I, we put on our scouting caps every once in a yeah. while. I know you do for – I mean, you you pay more attention to prospects than I do. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, when you look at Scotty's game, how do you want to see it develop given what you know he currently does well? and the context of the roster and what you want to see him get better at yeah um don't kill me for saying this name but um the a lot of the things that julius randall does would be (laughs) would be really nice um julius julius is able to grab the ball in the same spots mid post top of the key and is able to he's not a playmaker that scotty is Face up, separate with his strength, with Scotty's one of the stronger players on the team, and finish with both hands, and also has the ability to to hit fadeaways with both shoulders. There's a lot more versatility and a lot, a lot more things that he can do with facing up. You often see with Scotty is that he grabs the ball in those positions and instantly turns that into a post, which reduces his playmaking, whereas he only has a couple options to throw the actual pass. And obviously, as a, a scorer, there's only so much you can do from the post and bringing it down like your Charles Barkley. So I think learning to face up and doing some of the things that Julius Randle does, not saying this is the ceiling, but starting starting point from there would be really nice. This That's a really great point, actually. And that's and once again, to anybody listening, this is not saying that the comp is Julius Randle. <laughs> I think that the case to make would be that Julius, for example, has a tighter handle than both Pascal and Scotty. And Scotty and Pascal, and especially Pascal over the past month and a half, two months, has gone to the post up more often because he's not as comfortable exposing that dribble to the his primary defender. The post up is a, a security blanket for these guys, for Scotty and for Pascal both. And you're absolutely right that players are much worse at playmaking when they turn their back because you're not... Like you're just typically not playmaking up the floor, and that's where your head is when you when you turn your back, right? When you go, and especially you can't manipulate with your body the same way. It's just Scotty 
has a master class every game, a few plays a game, even if it doesn't result in an assist where he shifts the defense with his eyes and a probe dribble at the same time. You can hang a dribble and look one way, push the other. Like there's a bunch of manipulation that he's missing out on by turning his back. And, and I think that's a really, really insightful answer. I wonder if he has the requisite skills right now to kind of become that. And I also do wonder if Pascal is taking up a lot of those types of possessions in the offense right now, because the Raptors obviously want to run and have been running a lot more Pirtle Van Vliet pick and roll because that's been their best play since they traded for Pirtle. Both Siakam and Scotty, I think, have struggled to play make specifically to Pirtle as a roller something they both need to get better at. But I do really wonder what this looks like for Scotty because I think it it forces Scotty to kind of develop more of those guard skills. And as somebody who I don't necessarily know if I thought that he was ever going to be like a, a pick and roll hub or a guy who like comes off pin, like do either the high volume guard thing where you run pick and roll or you do like that three and D thing where you develop like Michael Bridges where you come off of pin downs, like really clean off the shoulder, bam, you create separation, you get really comfortable with pulling up or one dribble stuff or even catch and shoot. I have no idea how Scotty plans on developing, but I do know that it seems like Pirtle, his presence moves Scotty farther out of his, his comfort zones. And that to me means that the rest of this season and whatever they do in the summer is extremely interesting, you know? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, this team is so oddly built. You know what I mean? Like they, they went from, because Pirtle's seven foot one. He's a big guy. They're very clearly winning their minutes with him on the floor. He's been immensely important. But now that the Raptors, you know, they leaned harder into not being able to shoot the basketball. And part of leaning on that means that Scotty has to shoot more threes. Pascal has to shoot more threes. OG, Gary, Fred, those guys have to hit. Precious has been in some sort of funk. It's just, it's yeah. it's odd basketball. Although it's better basketball. Than, actually, go nuts. I know you have qualms about this team right now. Um, I, I'm way more positive than I was in, in the last pod. I like the team is clearly good and it's nice to see good basketball. I think like the, what I'm like really curious about is like where does Precious lie and like, future development because it looked clear that they were prioritizing his development and he was getting a lot of creation touches, especially like towards the trade deadline. He probably played his best basketball of the year. Um, He's still playing as a center when Jakob is off of the court, but they haven't really played him and Jakob together very much, obviously because Precious probably isn't as refined of an offensive player that they would like, but um where his fit long-term is probably the biggest question. If they're going to truly invest into keeping Jakob long-term and running Scotty, Pascal, Jakob as your front court, do you think um, Precious can like gain those guard skills or a reliable shot to become uh, a potential lineup with Jakob? Because you know already the defense would be amazing. That is interesting. I really enjoyed, this is our friend, friend of the show, T., has that hilarious tweet where he's talking about like, I can't wait to watch this Raptors team down the stretch with Gary and Fred alternating missing games. 
It's so silly, (laughs) right? Like he wants to see the Raptors play really big. And there's definitely, as you said, like the defensive upside is massive. We saw Jakob and Precious start in the front court together shortly after the All-Star break. The defensive returns were really good. However, comma, as far as the level of teams they were playing right after that, that that can't create the rule from which you analyze. Like you have to see it against better teams, and we haven't seen it. There's clearly potential there in both that lineup achieving things defensively, even if Precious doesn't develop his or kind of like pad out his guard skills or shooting skills. And there's obviously potential for Precious to do that. He seems really, really far away from it now. And when players are kind of operating like this with only so many games left in a season, there's not a lot of practices down the stretch. I, you know, I haven't been going to much. I haven't, there hasn't been much happening as far as that goes. Typically, you have to wait till next season after they get an offseason of work in. I don't know what it looks like for this season, and I don't know what the Raptors want to see to, I guess, justify decisions they'd like to make in the summer or what has to happen for them to justify decisions they aren't looking forward to making. But I imagine Pirtle coming there, obviously they trade a first-round pick for him two seconds. They're going to re-sign him, probably to a substantial contract he's going to demand. Precious is like Scotty. I'm glad you brought that up. Going to be forced into the shoot the ball and like, if you guys don't shoot the ball, this team isn't going to work the way we want it to. And Pascal is also in that camp too. These guys who none of them are natural shooters. All of them have plus movement ability, like major, majorly interesting movement abilities to kind of navigate the floor offensively. But none of them just shoot the damn thing. And that is that's probably the the most interesting aspect of this team is trying to succeed without being able to shoot, which, God, I'd love to watch a team that didn't have that specific um, problem, especially when they weren't playing defense. That made it hell to watch. Like, it's just a grind fest, and then on the other end, there's no grind. But, man, I don't, like, what do you think? What do you think Precious's future looks like if Pirtle, Scotty, Pascal, that's like the front court, right? If that's a lot of front court to navigate as a guy trying to get minutes. Yeah, I would say like my opinion on Precious probably changes from like every like 10 games or so. <laughs> so this is subject to change. But I think what I've seen probably over the last like two years, he probably doesn't have enough length to be a center long term. Just he's not like a Robert Williams, for example, where like the explosion plus like the length makes it viable to be six eight six nine. Well, he has no neck, right? <laughs> like this, this is a weird thing. This is, we, we talked about this with a leg, right? Is a leg... Most people listen to the podcast know who Leg is, but we all play basketball together. Leg is a guy that we have determined to say, like, he's got really long arms. It makes it a lot easier for him to finish at the rim. He doesn't actually have long arms. He just has really high shoulders, which create like makes your standing reach much higher for finishing, right? So in the passing lanes, Leg can't do anything. At the rim, now you're talking, right? And Robert Williams has no neck. So his shoulders sit so high, so it's like his functional length going high is massive. Precious has a neck, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, like, long term, like, I think that he's going to be a four. He's shown that he has movement skills where it could be viable, especially in situations where he can 
his shooting is going somewhat decent, like you saw um, post-All-Star game last year, where he was attacking closeouts, finishing at the rim, and his free throw weight was actually fairly decent for somebody of his skill set. I think what comes next is probably, like, he's going to have to, in order for him to be on the team long-term, he has to learn how to shoot. Or he, I, the only way I see him being here long term is if that they find a viable option where on the bench he can be where Chris Boucher could manage the the five spot and he can work off of him. I know both of them play really well together, but um, I would say like his fit on the team is now in question just because of like Jakob's presence on the team. It's yeah, it's in question if he doesn't figure anything out. Yes. Like whereas whereas prior to that, you and I talked about this all season long. We we talked about it before we had the podcast. Is like the Raptors' ceiling is tied inextricably to what Precious Achua does at the center position. They didn't have the luxury to say like, yeah, if if Precious doesn't work out, we're solid in the front court. That wasn't the case at all. We saw that before they got Pirtle. We and we saw a lot of it, but now, like yeah, Precious the extra defensive pop and uncommon defensive pop he's able able to provide at the five as a smaller guy isn't as important to the construct and context of the team if if Pirtle is there. And in addition to that, like what makes all of Precious's offense work is the three-point shot because we've seen him try and operate as a roller and he doesn't have the he doesn't do the due diligence to screen properly to create separation for his guys his pacing some games sure it's okay in a lot of games it's disastrous like he's walking into driving lanes he's bringing defenders over without dashing into open space like he's just not losing his guy or making his teammates lose theirs and when the ball reaches his hands he seems like he's fighting a you know a battle of do i do what i want to do or do i just reset because Precious wants to like go nuts every possession, break out a you know a combo, see if he can get to a spot on the floor. But he's he's tight, like he's in the middle of a couple different developmental paths offensively. And if he just shoots well, then everything's simplified because he while he doesn't have the pacing to run the pick and roll, to screen and and find space, he certainly is capable of kind of a little baby brush screen and then just popping into space. And, you know, if he draws a closeout, his pump and drive, free throw rate, finishing, dunks, all that kind of stuff is really easy for him. That stuff doesn't require any him to develop anything. It's there. And mm-hmm. and the shooting, if he has an open shot, then if he's a good shooter, he'll just make it. But everything else requires a lot of development. So I don't think this season makes or breaks him. And I don't know if we'll see that much meaningful stuff. I certainly hope we do. But this summer, man, it's going to be so big for Scotty, for Precious, and especially for the team as far as their decision-making goes. We've been a little bit down. Most encouraging thing since All-Star break. I got to hear what you think it is. Uh, Jeffrey Down. Hell yeah. he's He's been great. Um, I think what was surprising for me at least is that He's probably he's not with the team right now, but he's probably the best point of attack defender um, from the guard spot. He can really defend. He has really long arms, and he really gets in there. You saw with um, Fred with the wear and tear that he probably isn't the same defender that he was um, previously. And Gary's never been known as very good at the point of attack, aside from 
um, being good at um, generating chaos and getting steals. But um, Down gives um, a lot different pacing than Fred and Gary, who are more um, chaotic in how they defend or even on the offensive end. Down can run a pick and roll to some level and a decent at a decent degree. And we haven't had that from a backup point guard spot um, in probably probably since the championship, I would say, mm-hmm. which is really crazy to say. Um, concern is obviously he hasn't played since he, he, had, he played really well. But I think he should have a guaranteed contract and it should be converted. And like moving forward, because I know the Raptors are kind of now experimenting with 10 players in their rotation, 10 or 9 which is better than the six that they were doing before. <laughs> I think Jeff should be a part of that 10, and he is giving reason to think that there's other positions where we can prioritize in the summer and finding a better fit. So I think that outside, as far as the guards, in the organization, 905, Raptors, the whole deal, I think you could say that Jeff Down Jr. is the best point of attack defender. I was really interested to get um, Coach Curry's, uh, Eric Curry's response on kind of like Jeff's defense ahead of um, playing Scoot, Sissoko, uh, Leonard Miller, all these different types of guys who really get to the bucket. And like, that was what he said. He was like, being able to wall that off, those drives, keep guys in front of you, it's going to be huge. And Jeff is just about as good as anybody in the organization at doing that. He didn't say on the team. He said in the organization, even the 905 guys know how transformative Jeff's point of attack defense has been. Not to mention like in that 905 game I went to, he had three steals and three blocks. And just anytime he was involved in an action, he blew it up. That happens at the NBA level a lot too. And I think that the Raptors, this is what I wrote about. I think that there's a lot of room for Doughton, not only to continue to impact defensively, but he is... He's underwhelmed at things that he's definitely good at as far as like calling his own number. He can get to the rim. Like he can come off a screen, head downhill, certainly. He also shoots better than people. He he kind of marauds around the court like he can't shoot the basketball. He can. Like, you know, he has hundreds and hundreds of threes at the G League line, which is the same. And he's shooting like 38, 39%, right? It's, It's not that crazy to think that he could come in and, give you 35, 36% from the guard position at worst in the NBA. I'd love to see that. And he's got wiggle, man. He can get to the in-between shots. I think that he's a guy who will carve out a career at the NBA. I don't know if it's going to be with the Raptors, but I certainly hope it is. So I'm glad you brought that up. My like positive thing is, and I know people, I, I saw the response to mine in Lewis's podcast about talking about Fred, where, you know, I landed on saying he's a good playmaker. I don't like being a good playmaker isn't life changing in the NBA, by the way, but he's a good playmaker. Um, he's been really good since they've got Jakob Pertl. Yep. I talked about this with Lewis, where the fact that Fred is a passer who is risk averse and likes to make simpler reads that aren't as dangerous Having Pirtle be a safe release valve means that all the like risk averse passes that Fred makes all get more dangerous because Pirtle is so much better at converting those kind of milk toast opportunities than Precious, Kemberch, Chris Boucher, 
anybody that young, anybody who's ever rolled for Fred over the past however many years, Pirtle is magnitudes better. And so Fred doesn't even have to kind of change his playmaking package. He just has to keep doing it the exact same way. And he's getting way more assists, providing way more looks. And not to mention Pirtle is the best screener by far. So he's getting more clearance. That has been really inherent. That has been really good. And so that's good. The thing we're waiting on, as I mentioned earlier, is just like Pascal and Scotty, you have to figure it out with with Pirtle. And I understand it's tough to just kind of pick that up and do that, but that's that's something that they have to be able to do, honestly. Yeah, I completely agree. Like the uh, Fred and Pirtle pick and roll has been like the key to like all of their wins going forward. And like the most surprising thing about Yak currently is where how good his touch really is around the rim and being so big and utilizing his catch radius to catch the ball finish in different positions and really be effective I think he's averaging around like 15 and 10 right now which is nothing that I was expecting from Yak coming into the actual uh like the actual trade so I think it's really solid and it shows that um one like guys like Malachi Fred even Jeff to a degree, like we're done a bit of a disservice where they can operate as pick and roll handler, but they're, they didn't have a necessarily roller who was like committed to going to the rim and able to finish at, at a, with their verticality, which is, which is tough for a point guard of their stature. This is something that confused me and I've kind of been poking around on this. I haven't gotten any good quotes on it. Yeah. I've been poking around on this fact that, after a game, I started talking to Nick Nurse about how often the Raptors were rolling lately at that point in time when we had that conversation. And he had said, like, yeah, we're actually rolling. I'm like, why the hell would you say that? You know, we're actually rolling. Dude, you tell guys to roll and they're like, eh. Like, that's, that's what I wondered is like, is everything a read? And you leave it to the guys. You say, hey, if it's there, you roll. If it isn't, you pop. And that's how little hands-on they had on the offense. And they left it in the hands of guys like Boucher, Achua, Thad, Kim, all these guys to kind of cobble together a game plan of reads. And none of these guys like to hard roll. One of those guys, one and a half with Thad, like to soft roll, short roll. Yeah, And it's like, is this what... Is this why the pick and roll wasn't there? Because you just couldn't get it from these guys? Are these guys defending their ability to make a read? Are you like leaving that open? I Maybe this is something I figure out and I'll get like more commentary from more guys over the course of the rest of the season, off season, whatever. But it, it surprised me because you can't force a guy to be a good roller. Maybe you can't even force a guy to roll. I'm not sure. But I thought that was really interesting that the conversation was more so about like, they're finally doing it. It seems like it's not that big of an ask, right? And suddenly Jakob Pertl is like, I'll do that. You want to see a guy roll and like make contact on the screen and roll in the space? I'll score 15 points a game on 98% from the field. You're welcome. And it's like, damn, is yeah. this what, is it mentality? Is it skill? Is it like the design of the offense? I found it super interesting. Okay, five games. A big five-game stretch in Los Angeles to play the Lakers. Mind you, this is Thursday night we're recording this. The fellas, the Raptors, they might be out on the town right now. <laughs> a day off in L.A. might be a little crazy, so who knows? 
luckily it's a late game uh, for them. For viewers, 10.30 p.m. on the East Coast, rest in peace. I'm so sorry. That's the Lakers game. Three days off. You got Denver in Toronto. You got OKC in Toronto. You got Minnesota in Toronto. And then you have the Bucks. What does that five-game stretch look like to you as far as wins and losses? Like, I, I think they're going to go three and two. That would be big. Most, most likely, I would say. I think just, like, A, coming into, like, the Laker game, um, they're without LeBron. D'Lo still injured. And they're a team that, although AD is probably, like, one of the best, like, off-ball bigs and is having a great season, I think – Jakob, like with also coupled with the length of like Pascal, Precious, Scotty is going to give him a hard night. So I see that as a win. Going into Denver, I think we match up really well, though. Like they're the better team. That throwing those post entries to um, Jokic and you saw in that game is hell for them, just because the the, the nature Four of the years running. Four years running, they can't throw post entries. They they can't yeah. even enter the ball above the break to Jokic. Like the Raptors have just had that number. And you saw in the fourth quarter that Jokic started take, starting the possession off because they couldn't get the ball to him. So I just think, like, matchup-wise, that it's tough for them, and I see a, a win there. And I think we can beat Minnesota just, just because um, they're another team that has an injury with a, another massive player as well. And with um, Anthony Edwards, I don't think he's progressed as, like, a pick-and-roll player that he can navigate through the Raptors' chaos like a Luka Doncic or like a Trey Young. So I see a lot of turnovers in that game. So I'm going to say three and two. So the swing for me, I see three and two as well. Yeah. I I could see it because I think they beat LA. Yep. I think if they don't beat Denver, they beat OKC. Like I, I think they get one of those games at the very least. And I don't think they beat the Bucks in Milwaukee. But between it being like a toss-up in my mind between Denver, because they're the better team, but it is a good matchup, and a toss-up between Minnesota, I think that Los An- I think they beat the Lakers tomorrow. I think they beat OKC. I do think it could go four and one or three and two. And four and one is like a crazy outcome, right? That's like you win, you win the games you're supposed to. And you steal, like, you know, I don't know if you would call it stealing from the the Timberwolves, but you steal one from Denver. Yeah. And um, and you get, like, you know, 50% chance toss-up in some other ones. But I, I do think that there's, there's an option for the Raptors to have a very good stretch. If things go south on this stretch, and it starts tomorrow, really, for the listeners today, I, I do wonder what that looks like, especially for the playoff picture. Because the Raptors... I expected to them to be ahead of where they are currently, a little bit in the standings. I actually expected them to be 500 by now, and they obviously aren't. But this stretch could go a long way to kind of really cementing them because then they get a, a decent stretch. They get like four games in a row, Indiana, Detroit, Washington, Miami. You know, they get Charlotte twice at the end of the season. They have a chance to really impress down the stretch, but... They also have to go through a tough stretch now. And I think that given the matchups and all that kind of stuff, I think they can do well. They're a, good, they're a decent team now at the very least. And like decent teams win stretches. 
I hope they don't make me sound really silly for saying this, but decent teams win stretches. I don't know what else to say. No, I, I think you see with the starters, like they can compete with with pretty much anyone. So I, I don't see a scenario where they go like one and four in those games, like obviously. <sighs> That'd be a nightmare, dude. Even <laughs> even two and three, I think. I think it'd be a failure, yeah. You would see. Now, nobody should. I'm saying this because, you know, this is how we observe sports. Nobody should actually put weight in how a fan base reacts to things. Fan bases, like, go crazy over everything. You swing wildly, like, that's half the fun. But I think even, like, two and three would put the fan base in, like, civil unrest, honestly. Three and two, I think, holds everybody over. Four and one, I think everybody starts the, they don't want to see us in the first round conversation which is the funnest place to be in like all of sports. That's that's where I want the Raptors to be by the end of the season. Whether it's true or not, I want the fan base to be like they don't want to see us cuz that's that's just fun. You know what I mean? No. With with every win with um I have a few friends in um in Boston area. With every win that we've gotten, I I send them a text and say see you in April, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the spirit of tea has possessed you, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Like the best scenario is like they impressed really well, similar to last year, and you go into the playoffs thinking because a, a lot of people, even the media, thought that they were going to beat the Sixers. So I, I think, which would be tough with the Boston or Milwaukee, but you go into at least the play-in with like confidence saying that, and even even currently stating like their starters are some of the best in the league and we're going to be in a situation where now minutes are reduced. You're playing our starters versus their starters and we're not relying on the bench. So we're going to give Boston or Milwaukee two, three really, really hard games where they sweat and the series goes much longer than anyone thought. I think that's like... uh massive win heading into the summer and gives everyone more confidence after trading for for yak i i would be really happy to see one of the better teams in the nba not get the raptors in less than six i'd be like hell yeah you know you take two wins hopefully it's competitive elsewhere like the philly series there were a couple games that just weren't close and then like that series that was a strange series by the way like it felt like it was on the verge of flipping into like historics, like a historic outcome. But then, you know, they, they got handled and like, and then you look at that and then you step away from the series farther away from the two games that they won by the skin and the teeth. And you're like, well, damn, they got handled. And I hope you don't, I hope we don't feel that way in a round one series after this one. Like I know, like, like think back to the, the Indiana series where they got swept but they lost every game by like 0.8 points. Like it seemed like unfathomable, unfathomable that LeBron kept getting them, but he yep. did keep getting them. I'd like a couple losses like that. You know what I mean? A little, little, just so we can talk about it going forward. You know what though? We talk about playoff outcomes. This is where we come. This is the last thing on the podcast. This is something that weighs heavily on both Mine and and your conscious, conscience, I should say. The Pelicans and the Grizzlies both have fallen on hard times from when we made our bet. For listeners who don't know, viewers who don't know, if the Pelicans come out, go to the finals, Trey has to shave his head. Why does Trey have to shave his head? 
you know, <laughs> a little restitution, obviously. Now, if the Grizzlies come out of the West, I have to shave my beard. Bad news bears for either of us if that's the case. Yeah. The Pelicans, tell me why it's gone so poorly for me, please. With the, with the Pelicans, um, a lot of it's been unlucky. One, Zion and and B.I. haven't been able to play together at the same time, honestly, all season. And some of like the positive effects like have regressed to the mean. Like Dyson Daniels isn't giving you veteran-type minutes from a rookie all season long. He's He looks like a rookie now. Herb Jones isn't breaking all of the draft shooting rules and is now shooting like the thousands of shots that he shot in in college, which makes him a completely different player. He took the Nick Nurse shooting program after his first year. <laughs> so like he's a completely different player. You've seen um, Jonas, which breaks my heart. One of my favorite Raptors, like has regressed to some some degree, and they're already a team that allows a lot of dribble penetration. And if he's mm-hmm. not able to get at, at any rim protection or any force there, they're easy to be got on defense. So I think that's the the biggest reasons why they probably aren't like I think they're they're out of the playoffs right now so like the biggest reasons like why they've dropped down the standings when we made this made this ridiculous bet so that's the big thing also CJ and Brandon Ingram haven't been as good as they need to be you could you can make the same case for the Raptors for example right the Raptors imagine how much better a position they would be in if Fred was better to start the season Mm-hmm. And if Pascal were playing better now, the the guys you need to carry and not every single game, but you need them to carry over stretches, haven't been able to do so. The timing hasn't really been there. CJ and Brandon have had their games. They've had some good stretches, but it's just it hasn't linked up for wins, really. And that's the trouble with the Pelicans is they seemed like an immensely deep team. We talked about them like they were that. And then they were deep. They went to the playoffs last year. They gave Phoenix six, right? Super interesting team. And we even talked about them being like, wow, this is team building. And I still believe that to a large degree. But Zion, their ceiling is gone because that's what Zion was. It was this team that could get to the playoffs without Zion. That's what we thought it was. That had like a real identity. And then you just sprinkle a when healthy, like top 10 player on top of that. And suddenly things are really interesting. Memphis, they don't have Zion at his peak is better than Jaw at his peak. I think, I think we agree on that, but John Morant is run into, um, geez, the consequences (laughs) of his own actions. And nobody really knows what, that's going to look like over the course of the season. Have they announced a suspension or anything like that? Uh, he's gonna. I think they announced yesterday he's gonna be away for four more games. Four games. Okay. Yeah. And like good enough. They also, I believe, Colorado police um, wrapped up their investigation, right? And so he's not getting charged for anything. They said they didn't have enough evidence. I don't care about him getting i i would prefer he don't get charged by police i (laughs) seriously would prefer that i'd also prefer um if he wasn't strapped all the time but that's his prerogative he does what he wants i'm a person who isn't i like when people aren't strapped and that's fine it's his prerogative he knows not to show off the tool anymore you know 
not a hammer, not a screwdriver, the tool. He knows not to do that anymore. He probably is going to, you know, he, he, he used the, the PR terminology. I'm yeah. stepping away for X and Y. It's crazy, but Josh Primo and John Morant, despite having completely separate things going on, one significantly worse than the other, use yeah. the exact same terminology, right? Josh steps away. Dylan Brooks is on like a villain tour so much so that it seems like it's it's not even like a cute story anymore. It's like a detriment. Like the yeah. guy is like so villainous and annoying and rambunctious that even the team is like, bro, please. There's a lot of stuff going on. Jaron Jackson Jr. isn't giving you all the offensive pop that you might want. A bunch of stuff is happening there. What is your confidence level in the Grizzlies turning this thing around? Um, very low. Uh, I don't want to say very low because John Moran could come back and be on. Uh, Am I losing this beard, man? Come on, tell me. No, you're not losing this beard. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest reason is because um, I don't think Stephen Adams will be heading into playoffs like very fairly healthy. And you saw with um, like the Golden State series, a big reason why they lost. Like they can't without Stephen, they can't like bludgeon people on the glass. And without that. They aren't getting extra possessions because their half-court offense is already really bad. And Steven Adams, a very underrated passer. Mm-hmm. Helps out with a lot of situations and gives Jaron easier points than he's getting right now. So I think with him out, that really that really hurts like their ceiling and what they really can do um, on both ends. And then also Dylan Brooks has gotten to a level where he was one of those guys where advanced that people will say like, Look here, although he's doing this, he's here's the positive residuals, and the Grizzlies are this much better with him on the floor because of his point of attack defense. But he's gotten to a point where his creation load is so high and inefficient where the positive residuals from his defense have do not equate to the amount of um, negativity that he ha- like having him on the floor for their offenses. So I think they desperately need another creator heading into next year. I know that there was like rumblings of them talking to other teams like for OG McHale. I know they got Kennard, but until they get to that point, I don't see them being able to be the Denver and honestly, probably not even golden state currently. So I'd probably be surprised if they did. So with Dylan, just like the quick numbers, there's, Something that gets lost in the NBA is how important volume is. We've seen it even as Pascal has struggled, right, over however many different games, that his volume is really important to the team. Even if he's not making shots, you know, ideally, when Pascal was really taking off, he's between, like, for a long stretch, 49 to, like, 53% from the field. Hopefully, he's kind of getting up over 36% from three, around 80% from the free throw line. This is the just, like, boring stats man if he's there the offensive production is pretty good but the defense still has has to respond to him and he can't quit shooting if he's hitting like 42 or 43 percent which he has been lately right he can't just stop short and be like i'm not as efficient as i need to be guys let's look for something else you have to bend the defense dylan brooks to a much lesser extent than pascal occupied a role where he bent the defense his volume was helpful in that way. And in years past, like in 2021, their offense is six points better with him on the floor. The next year, four points better with him on this floor. This year, 
two points worse with him on the floor. Their offense is worse with Dylan Brooks for the first time in quite some time. The defense, he's still awesome defensively. He's really, really impactful. But it's just you're seeing the kind of the limiting returns of of how he's how he's impacting the game. And maybe he turns it around. Maybe he finds like, you know, he makes changes in his game. Maybe this is something that's also aided by jaw returning and you kind of see that return. But I don't really know. The point being is that as far as the way we analyze, it's exciting. This is, you know, I'm I will say that I won't say that you're at fault for this because the Grizzlies are much better than the Pelicans. I'm at fault for looking for new contenders. You know, you yeah, you, you want you want to you want somebody yeah. to make the leap. I certainly wanted the Pelicans to make that leap. And the damn thing about like how we're the Warriors, they screw around for about 40 games of the season. They're still here. And everybody's like, oh, the Warriors, this they they could be a team that we see come out of the West. Something like that is like it's so hard to knock a team off of the perch like winning. Is yeah. there's so many things intangibles that go into just grinding it out and finding your way to the the top of the mountaintop? It's like how all these teams that had these way better statistical profiles in the East, we saw the Raptors get swept as one of them. LeBron just found a way, and it's yeah. like it seems like the Grizzlies probably won't find a way. They'll have to find more ways in the future, and it definitely seems like 100 like the Pelicans is not their year. But I'm glad I'm probably not losing my beard. My fingers are... You're not losing that hairline. You cover up with a hat. You're too modest. It's the crisp hairline. Hall of Fame level. But um, probably neither of us are losing any hair over this. Which is less exciting from a basketball perspective. But I'm very excited not to... We saw what happened to S, man. He got killed going (laughs) baby-faced on the timeline. We can't have that. I thought he looked decent, to be honest. Well, yeah, it's... So... Like he's a handsome guy, so it doesn't yeah. really matter. But it's also people are like, "Hey, what the hell is this?" You know, yeah. you're you're we we form these parasocial bonds. Not necessarily we, but people form these parasocial bonds. They're like, "You're the guy with the beard." Like, so can you be the guy with the beard? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know what I'd be without my beard. It's been a long time since I've just gone. Yeah. Beardless. I haven't seen you without a beard. No, I don't think I've. Even like in the summer, I was like doing stubble. But like as far as like. Oh, yeah, you have seen me without the beard. Last year at like in February, March, I did just the mustache. Oh, you did. And you sent a picture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I shouldn't be doing that. That's reckless behavior on my end. Trey, (laughs) do you have any other thoughts on anything we talked about um, before we get out of here? I think um, I think it's been around 10 or 11 games since the deadline, give or take. I think. Jakob has given, an, I'll speak for myself, me personally, enough to give me my smile back. The Raptors have, are playing a lot better. And I think at bare minimum, you can give them until the summer to figure this out. Okay. You use this term. And like, I love that you've branded it with yourself. Like, it's like they took away my smile. I got my smile back. What is it? Can you elaborate this? Like, what, just, what is this? Like, with sports, like it's like this level of like tribalism and bonding where you like they can whatever happens literally affects their mood at three o'clock at the deadline because I assumed and every rumor imaginable said that they were going to do something that I was expecting something to wait. Three o'clock hit, it felt like 
you ran down to the tree and you there was no gift there. I literally, <laughs> I literally screamed at three o'clock because I was disappointed. <laughs> and I was depressed for like maybe a day or two. But like like beating like if we beat Denver, for example, smiling ear to ear, I'm happy the next couple of days just because the Raptors like show that they can beat a really good team. And I think that's what they're gonna do in this five game stretch. This is and maybe it's because it's work. Yeah. You know, I feel less compelled to write negative things that's than fair. positive things. However, that's just work. As far as like how I feel about the team, I don't think I wear the losses anymore. But I love hearing about it. Like Mac, hearing him say that he can't sleep when they lose. I'm like, bro. And and it's funny because anytime anytime I see because I'm I'll be up late working. Yeah. I know Mac has like a regular job. I know he's got kids. I'll see him up at three. Mac likes your tweet. I'm sorry, brother. Like I'm sorry they took your sleep away. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, like it's like that's that's the good thing about sports. Like it, it, it's like a separation from life, and it, it can affect your mood a lot. I I've been happier of late though, so I can't complain. Thank you, the Yakupro. Uh, oh, any Jays thoughts? Let's sneak that on here. We're going to go to a couple Jays games together yes, this summer. Are. Any any Jays thoughts? I think this is going to be the best Jays team that I have personally ever watched. Like, they increased the, their their defense is a lot better. The VAR show is coming to the outfield. <laughs> we have Kiermaier, who's hopefully he can stay healthy, but he's still one of the best defensive outfielders in the league. They got of all Bassett. time. From yeah. the people in the know, that's what they say. They've increased. I don't think they could have relied on like Stripling replicating the same season. So getting like a reliable third starter in Bassett is is humongous. And Kikuchi's having a good good spring. So all good. You know, you want to know something cool is that Bassett. They I don't know if you heard this, but they gave him pitch comp. Oh. So he is a guy who like he might see a huge boost. Now this is this is just LF field, but he might see a huge boost because Bassett throws seven pitches. He's like the guy from Major League who's got like the Vaseline. He's like he'll throw junk. He's got to mix it up, and he's like a big big old genius on the mound. He has pitch calm, so he can tell Kirk or Jansen what pitch he wants to throw. And so with pitch clock and all this kind of stuff, he doesn't have to shake anything off. He can just say like I want this pitch, and he can call his own games. And he's been really good at that. So that's like a really unique thing. And he says that Danny Jansen, if he wants to, he's talking about Jansen, not Kirk, because yeah. Kirk's been missing. He's having a kid. But he talks about Jansen like, Jansen, it's still his game. He can override anything. But I'm giving him the suggestions. And I was like, that's a really cool thing because it completely um, inverts the catcher-pitcher relationship. So yeah. that's like a unique specifically Chris Bassett thing. Cause a lot of pitchers are like, I want the catcher to call the game, see what they're seeing. Maybe I'll shake something off, but Bassett being like, Oh yeah, this is my game. I'm really interested to see what that looks like this year. Cause I've never really seen that before. Yeah. yeah. I think they're going to win division. They could, man. I think like, man, the Yankees are still probably going to be pretty good. Yeah. The Red Sox, I don't think will be very impressive. I guess the Orioles, even though they really impressed last year relative to expectations, I don't yeah. think they're making the leap this year. And I hope this is the year the Rays fall off. God, do I hope that 
they they just pinch pennies, man. It's like yeah. the most dehumanizing brand of baseball. The Jays are like this big celebration of like placata, athleticism, multiculturalism. It's like yeah. this big thing. It's like fun baseball. I want to see them rewarded. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I am on the Jays. I'm, I'm I'm glad we got to talk about them a little bit. Yeah. Hey, we'll just turn this pull up tray into <laughs> baseball podcast. Pull up Jay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pull up, yeah, pull up Jay. Good. Okay, everybody, thanks for tuning in and uh, listening to us ramble about something that isn't even related to basketball. Trey, thanks for uh, being the host. Let me hop on with you. And (laughs) listener, thanks for tuning in. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.